got married in 93, so she came over right after the fall of okay. the Soviet Union. Gotcha. And kind of never left. I mean, she goes back. Um, she tries to go back every summer. Mm -hmm. but. And was it like an eager exit from the Union? I mean, that year is pretty <laughs> ominous in terms of exiting. I mean, she told me that she moved because she met my dad. And okay. so she fell in love and she was like, that's what all the parents yeah, tell this the is where, <laughs> this is where we're going to live. Welcome to the Slava Connection. I am Tom. Although I told my sister-in-law I would start going by Thomas. So uh, I'm your host, Thomas Rehnquist. And today we have on the podcast, Lucia, who is a fellow Crease master student and LBJ, a GPS student, I believe. And uh, we're talking about a lot of things connected to the Caucasus, uh, Chechnyan female terrorists, a uh, little beast on Georgia, and eventually Nagorno-Karabakh, which is a frozen conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan. It's a great listen if you're interested in the region or if you're not. So I hope you enjoy. Cue the techno. You're listening to The Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Lucia, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. All right, so let's start off. So tell me how you got interested in Russia, the Eastern world. I know you have some family relations there. But, I do. Uh, My mom is from Russia originally. Grew up in the Soviet Union during Brezhnev, pretty much. Okay. Yeah. And then when did she make it over to the States? 1992, I believe, because they got married in 93. Mm -hmm. So she came over right after the fall of okay. the Soviet Union. Gotcha. And kind of never left. I mean, she goes back. Um, she tries to go back every summer. Mm -hmm. but. And was it like an eager exit from the Union? I mean, that year is pretty <laughs> ominous in terms of exiting. I mean, she told me that she moved because she met my dad. And okay. so she fell in love and she was like, that's what all the parents yeah, tell this the kids. Is where, <laughs> this is where we're going to live because my dad is American, side note, mm -hmm. I'm only half Russian. But I do remember her saying something like she felt in the air that the country was going to ruins because it was. I've seen her old Soviet passport, mm -hmm. which is obviously now defunct, but it's really cool to look at that and see a Sovietsky Soyuz, you know, Sovietsky Republika, like Russia. Right, right. Well, it's very present to see that mm. uh, mm. Russia was sort of failing in the 90s. Yes. And so is everyone in your family kind of studying Russia, Russian focus? Are you no, black I am the first to be like a Russian studies cool. major, anything like that. Yeah. Awesome. And so you were A&M undergrad, correct? Yes. Were you studying? For all the Aggies out there. <laughs> <laughs> were you focused on the, the field then? or did you? Yes, kinda... I did. Um International studies, politics, and diplomacy focus with Russian as my language. Awesome. And so what are you focusing on, Crease? And congratulations. I know you're also into LBJ. Mm -hmm. um, do you have a thesis idea? Do you have any future prospects? Oh, I do have a couple. So the first, I know you already know about a little bit, focusing on this group in Chechnya, which is considered the North Caucus. They're called the Black Widows. If you... Ever heard of the 2004, like, Moscow theater bombing? Mm -hmm. They were the ones behind that. Oh, okay. That was sort of their first uh, international media coverage where the world saw them and was like, who are these people and why are there 20 women in this entire attack? And the controversy there, if I remember correctly, was not necessarily the attack, but how... Putin how, put down the attack, yes, correct? Do you want to go into a little more about that? How the happened. So, from my memory, they 
it was a hostage situation. They went into the theater in the middle of the performance, and it was the opening night of the performance. Um, Novo Orst, I think is what it was called. And so Shamil Basayev and his group like came in and they said, we're going to hold everybody hostage until uh, the Russian troops stop what they considered an attack in Chechnya. Because Chechnya was fighting for independence. There's still a hint of a movement for my research for Chechen independence because they're not Slavic, they're not Orthodox. Still today or still in 04? Um, still today and mm-hmm. still definitely in 04 because there were two Chechen wars. Sure. And so this was already uh, when the second Chechen war was going on. So there was a hostage crisis and a lot of the people were women and children, which is why it's so important that there were about 20 women as the hostage takers because from my understanding of Islam, in this particular sect of like fundamentalism, the women have to be with the women and children if they're taking them hostage. The men aren't, aren't allowed to do that. So that's why it's kind of, it's kind of weird, mm-hmm. <laughs> in my opinion, that there were you know, 20 women that were doing all this right. hostage taking. And so the controversy was that when the Russian troops went in, they went in with some kind of gas to put out the attackers, but it also ended up hurting the hostages. And there was some controversy about, did they know that it was going to be inside the entire theater? Why couldn't they just go in and do something else? Because they did have to acknowledge that the women had suicide belts strapped to them. You can see that in the photos and in like the videos. But... I still wonder why they had to use the gas. And there's a handful of deaths, of civilian deaths, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't remember how many off the top of my head, but there definitely were. And so what attracted you? So was it just sort of the idea of that these female terrorists and how they fit into this narrative? Or is it a larger idea of the Chechenian conflict um, starting think, in 96 and still sort of continuing? I mean, if you want to talk about I it. I think a- I'm going to focus more on the female terrorists and how they fit into the narrative. But... Again, in my experience, Chechnya does not get a lot of not get a lot of attention in right. counterterrorism studies. It does, hmm. but you have to know where to look. Like if you say the word counterterrorism studies, the first country that pops in your head is probably somewhere in the Middle East. Afghanistan or yeah, Iraq. Yeah. Or Afghanistan, Iraq, maybe even Palestine. Mm-hmm. You're probably not gonna think of Chechnya. No. Which is kind of unfortunate because research has shown that there are so many Chechen mercenaries going into ISIS when ISIS was a big deal, going into Al-Qaeda when Al-Qaeda was a big deal, even um, just going into all these other conflicts, the wars in Georgia over Abkhazia and South Ossetia in the 90s, there were a lot of Chechen mercenaries on that side of things. So if you follow, (laughs) I don't want to say if you follow the money, but if you follow the Chechens, you're going to find them everywhere. Sure. And yeah, I mean, I would translate to Dagestanis as well, who are responsible for the mm. uh, Boston bombings yes, during the marathon. Yes. So, and do you think the complication behind Chechnya in general is its sort of limbo state as a state? I don't think the average person could point out where Chechnya is or even what to That's call it. That's a good point. A lot of people, in my experience, when I say Chechnya, they think I'm saying Chechnya, which is the Czech word for the Czech Republic. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then I have to point out, no, this is an area in the Russian Federation and sometimes it's even news to them that Russia is a federation because they hear Russia, they think right, of right. one giant mass, and they don't expect that there's all these different ethnicities and different religions mm-hmm. and different languages. But um, going back to your question, I think it it kind of is because if you look at 
Stalin during the Soviet Union, Ingushetia and Chechnya are technically, the people are technically the same as they were up until the 1920s, 1930s, when Stalin sort of redrew the map and separated them to, to weaken that area of the North Caucasus. And so I think that is kind of a problem because there are these people that are saying, well, we weren't even supposed to be separated to begin with, and now we are, and not to mention we're in this country where we are on the fringes. Like, this Liter- is literally. Near, literally, this yeah. is near the border between Armenia, Georgia, and Azerbaijan. And we're not Slavic, we're not Russian Orthodox, we don't even really speak Russian, like that's not our native language. It's Chechen, Dagestani, English, no, you know, the North Caucasus languages. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's, um, yeah, that's a it, huge contributing factor. It sort factor. of looks like Afghanistan, even topographically, right? Very mountainous, and there's sort of like this, there's sort of a tribal aspect, right? Sort of you can see different languages yeah, like miles apart. I think so. I think that's to the Georgian, to the Caucasus region. I mean, I'm, I'm asking you. I, I think so. I think you could also argue that at least, at least in the beginning after the fall of the Soviet Union, Georgia was and arguably still is one of the more divided uh, hmm. former Soviet countries. I like to call it the um, Eurasian Italy because there are these regions within Georgia. I think there's four or five, and I don't remember all the names, but linguistically, they're all a little bit different ethnically. I mean, they're all Georgian, but they're also slightly different in a sense. And so the way you see kind of a fracture between North Italy and South Italy in terms of Northern Italians are very proud that they're Northern Italians, and then the Southern Italians are very proud that they're Southern Italians. You kind of see that in Georgia as well. I'm sure that's complicated too, Bob Kazia and South Ossetia. Yes, yes. That was part part of the reason that Bob Kazia and Ossetia wanted to leave is because they were saying, well, we're not actually Georgian, we're Ossetian, we're Abkhazian. And Batumi, um, a city in the region of Ajara, Mm -hmm. which... Right in the Black Sea. Yes, yes. Um, Jason and the Argonauts is believed to happen in that area. (laughs) They also wanted to leave around that time because they had a lot of organized crime issues. And I forget exactly how the president was able to keep them from leaving, but he was. Um, that was also an area that people were expecting some kind of breakaway war to happen. You've done research in Georgia, too, as well. Have you been there? Or are you planning to I use there? research very, very loosely. So You read a couple articles. I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah. So backstory, when I was at Texas A&M, I was in ROTC for almost... Two years, so like three semesters, and then I left because I knew I was going to be DQ'd by the Department of Defense, and I decided I didn't want to commission mm-hmm. into the Air Force, so it was kind of a, you know, might as well leave, although I did really enjoy my time in ROTC, so shout out to anybody that is in the military, and thank you for your service. Um, so anyway, so when I was there, at the end of freshman year, I applied and got accepted for this core excursion, and it happened to originally be slated for Israel, but then there was a bunch of stuff going on when we would have been going in May. And so there was a bunch of stuff before May uh, 2015 with Hamas Mm -hmm. that the university and the Corps of Cadets was like, we're not sending cadets there. Like, not not this year. Eventually they did. I think it was two years later they were finally able to have that trip. So then they changed the location to Georgia and Armenia. And I'm kind of embarrassed to say that when that happened, I asked my parents, I was like, where? 
where is Armenia? And I thought Georgia was a state. <laughs> and this is coming from someone who's half Russian. Right. Um, so they pointed out, you know, where it was on the map, and they kind of explained, you know, this is the Caucasus. And my dad even said, oh, I know some people that are from Armenia. I can put you in touch with them. So he did, and then I met with them when I was in Armenia. So we were, we flew Turkish Airlines into Tbilisi, which is the capital of Georgia. From Tbilisi, we took a bus into Yerevan, because we were going to start in Armenia. We were in pretty much Yerevan for like five days. Um, then we went back to Georgia, and in Georgia, we were kind of all over. We were in Tbilisi, the capital. We were in Batumi, so I got to see the monument to Jason Argonauts, which mm -hmm. is pretty cool. Uh, we were in Svaneti, which is this mountain town. We were also in... Uh, the name escapes me, but it's a city where they really make a lot of wine. And I know it describes a lot of Georgia. Georgia. Yeah. Yes, but it's one. It's like Kutsai or some something like that. It starts with a K. Mm -hmm. So we were able to drive through there and just see the country. And in Armenia, we drove past uh, the lake, Lake Savan, which is really pretty to just see outside your window. And we got to see the outline of Mount Ararat, which the Armenians believe is where Noah's Ark landed, if you know the biblical story of Noah's Ark. I'm not sure how much evidence there is to corroborate that, especially because that's considered to be now in Turkey. So anything that Armenia says, Turkey, of course, is going to refute and say that it was untrue or just is complete and utter rubbish. So we'll, we'll see. And so you're going through these countries, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Georgia. Are you seeing sort of the reflections of Soviet rule when you're even just on the ground there? Because, I mean, we talk about... Nagorno-Karabakh, we've spoken mm -hmm. about quite a bit in our class yes. of Bella Jordan. Yes. And, um, oh, I guess you could talk about it if you want to, if, you want to, <laughs> if I could tee that up for you. I guess. Um, well, which question do you want me to answer first? So, I mean, because Nagorno-Karabakh is just sort of this land that no one really wants. There's nothing there. However, there's been this, like, ethnic division mm -hmm. sowed there mm -hmm. by just sort of airsats map drawing by the Soviets. To They knew yes. that there was ethnic Armenians there. So they gave the area to Azerbaijan. If yes, you look on the this map... this was Stalin in the 1920s, 1930s. Yeah, it looks like water going down the drain of what part of the map is owned by what mm -hmm, country. It seems mm -hmm. completely random. And it was this idea by the Soviets to sow this ethnic tension locally to remove any sort of protest nationally against the Soviet idea. Are you seeing that elsewhere in that region? Are you noticing it just like talking to people? What's sort of the... The legacy there. I think this is a little bit off the topic of oh, Nagorno Karabakh. That's probably a better answer than I, I had a question. I think that when I was there, and you have to understand and remember that when I speak Russian, a lot of people assume that I grew up there and I moved here. Mm -hmm. Or in the case of being in Georgian Armenia, they assumed that I was from Russia and I, you know, learned. English elsewhere. And that's not to say that I've completely flawless, accented less, accentless Russian, but I don't have a very noticeable accent. And the one that I do have isn't distinctly American. So it's really hard to place kind of where I am from, so to speak, even though I was born in America. But I noticed that a lot of times when I would talk to older Georgians in Russian, depending on the gender of the person and then obviously their mood and what I was doing. If I was ordering at a restaurant, if I was just asking where the street was, you're going to get two different reactions. But it was kind of like they didn't really want to speak to me in Russian. But I also knew 
that they probably didn't know English. Given their age, I was just guessing. I was like, I would come up to them and be like, hey, could you, do you speak Russian? And Russian, obviously. And they were like, yeah, I do. <laughs> so that I was like, okay, could you please help me out? But in Armenia, it's interesting because even like our generation, they very much were comfortable speaking in Russian. To me, they, I didn't feel a lot of antagonistic atmosphere speaking to them in Russian. But in Georgia, I kind of did. And it was also interesting because people our age, I remember one time I was, I don't remember what city I was in, but I was somewhere and I wanted to get some ice cream. And the only person that was working there was, I would say 25 maybe. So I walk up to her and I start speaking to her in Russian. I'm like, do you understand Russian? We want some ice cream. She looks at me and shakes her head and is like, no, like I don't speak any Russian. So then I ask her in English, hoping that she understands English. She doesn't. So I had to kind of sign language mime in order to order ice cream, mm. which I've never had to do because a lot of the places I've traveled to, I have had either competency in the language, such as Russian. At one point, I was conversationally fluent in Spanish, and now I am not, but I still understand enough of it that I could ask somebody where something is, and then I could understand their answer. I could order ice cream, and I would be fine. So that, for me, was sort of a new experience of of traveling and not really being able to rely on my language skills. Long story short, uh, I think that is sort of a Soviet hang-up of especially recently with the wars in Georgia and Georgia viewing the situation as a quarter, about a quarter of their territory being occupied by the Russians. Mm -hmm. Um, There is, there is some tension when you speak Russian to Georgians. And I remember one time distinctly, I asked somebody, do you speak Russian? Because I was, I don't know. I just could tell that they didn't speak English. And they responded, I do a little bit but I'm Georgian. And I wanted to say, I didn't ask your ethnicity. I asked what language you speak. Mm-hmm. It's, it's understandable. People from the Caucasus are very proud that sure. they are from the Caucasus. Well, yeah, I mean, Georgia is a very complicated relationship with Russia now, opposed mm-hmm. to Armenia. Absolutely. Very good relations. Armenia is smoother sailing, especially because there is a Russian base in uh, Yerevan. From mm-hmm. my understanding, it's still there. Which is also horribly complicated because Russia is funding Armenia who's fighting Azerbaijan, in who's, the, also, the funded, who's also funded yes. by Russia, who and Azerbaijan's then, great allies with Israel for some reason. Yes, um, and Azerbaijan, um, from my understanding, they, their people and their language is considered to be the Turkic family. Mm-hmm. And so now, especially with the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, Armenians, if they're being really disdainful toward Azerbaijanis, they'll call them Turks. Mm-hmm. Because in an Armenian's mind... It's kind of the same thing, and it's also a huge insult, especially given the history between Armenia and the Ottoman Empire and the genocide. Was there a genocide? Was there not a genocide? That's a question that is up for debate, depending on what country you're in. I fall on the yes side. Yes, I do too, especially since I did get to visit the genocide memorial, and I did get to see the photos of all of the events, and like I saw our tour guide take us to the area which they sort of refer to as the eternal flame and when someone tells you how their family was affected by this and you see photos of people being hung or children being I don't even I can't even put into words you it's kind of 
it's kind of hard to look at someone in the face and right. say, oh, yeah, this was not a genocide. Yeah, this is complicated, like, it's actually. Yes, it's complicated, especially mm-hmm. because I did have a few friends and classmates on the trip with me who are Jewish American, and they have family who are Holocaust survivors. So that, for them, I know is also very moving and very personal because there is a quote by Hitler, and I'm, prob- I'm going to paraphrase it, um, on the eve of his invasion um, into the start of World War II, he wrote in a letter, who is going to remember the annihilation of the Armenians? And I feel like mm. today there are still people that are proving him correct, unfortunately. Sure. I mean, this podcast is probably banned in Turkey if I go back to this recording. Yes. Um, now, I mean, it's a very complicated topic. There's often cited that there was no explicit order to kill Armenians. Mm-hmm. There's no explicit order to kill Jews. And the then the Turks either. are also was, saying, oh, it wasn't just Armenians. It was Assyrians and Greeks. But the fact of the matter is they were minorities that were persecuted on the Ottoman Empire. Sure. There were specific policies that when you look at the UN Convention on Genocide Prevention meet the requirements for what should be considered a genocide in my research and in my biased opinion. So well, we've gone very far from a uh, <laughs> Chechen female terrorist. Yes, we have. Um, we're still in the caucus though. So, right. You know, yeah. No, no, we're, we're on the same ball field. We're just yeah. playing a different game. Um, so I'd say, where do you see the logical conclusion of your research heading? Logical conclusion. Uh, if I decide to focus on the Chechen black widows and not Nagorno-Karabakh, because the other option would be I research the three previous peace agreements and kind of nitpick what was right, what was wrong, how can we build a fourth one that actually gets signed and gets on the table. But I am leaning more towards the Chechen female topic because I was talking to Dr. Garza and I was just throwing around ideas because I think he's going to be my primary advisor. And he, in his experience, said there's not a lot of graduate students writing about Chechen terrorism in general, especially the female aspect of it. So I think, yeah, I think it is kind of understudied, especially in the West. You have to know where to look. And that's not to say that people aren't researching women as terrorists. They are. But again, they're not really focusing on Chechen women. And especially in Eurasian studies and Russian studies, if you want to understand Russia, I think one of the best ways to do that is understand one of their biggest threats. Mm -hmm. So in that case, it would be Chechens. That's a great place to end. I appreciate that. And a lot of academia is market capitulation. Mm -hmm. So I think you're definitely on the right track. Um, So what I usually ask uh, guests before we end is to speak about their last favorite book they've read, last favorite movie. Uh, It could mm -hmm. be about Chechen female terrorists or something. (laughs) It could be Shakira. I know you're a fan. Uh, Yes, I am a Shakira fan. But um, I'm... Yeah, so I'm reading it right now, uh, you know, because it's for Dr. Jordan's post-Soviet geopolitics class. It's called The Black Garden by Thomas DeWall, and he is one of the best authors on the Caucasus, North and South. This book is one of his earlier books, but he's written several books since then about Georgia, about Armenia, and this particular book is about the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict. He goes into the region which in and of itself is kind of unprecedented. I think it was written in the early early 2000s. So stuff was still really recent. And he talks to Azeris, he talks, to, or Azerbaijani, excuse me. He talks to Armenians living in the region, living in these towns that were, you know, at one point Azerbaijani majority and then 
they were pushed out and replaced by Armenians and vice versa. He doesn't just talk to military leaders. He talks to people that are living in these areas and that you know, are just trying to get on with their lives. And it's, it's kind of sad because Azerbaijan and Armenia and other readings that I've read have been called the twins of the Caucasus. At one point, they were very, very similar, even before the Soviet Union, because they're, they're neighbors. They have a lot of similarities, even though I, right now that would be a very controversial statement to say. They're but, both spending 4% of the GDP on military. Uh, yes, yes. But when you dig into certain cultural nuances, there are some similarities there. Sure. And this conflict has really just driven driven a wedge. And it's not just about religion. And it's not just about ethnicity. It's this combination of both of them and hopefully reading this book will give me a better insight into the conflict i do recommend it that's an eerie uh final point but i think a good one mm-hmm. right, well, thank you for coming mm-hmm. on the podcast you're welcome thank you Especially the views opinions and ideas expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the university of texas thank you for listening to the slavic connection please visit slavxradio.com for more information and to subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel. As always, we invite listener feedback, so please send us your comments. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you.